This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, we'll talk about the egregious late stoppage and the Anthony Smith Glover to share about from last night. We'll talk to Dave Feldman of BKFC. Is it true that they're trying to sign Mike Tyson and what might be next for them? Plus, Dana White lashes out at the New York Times. Does he have a point? We'll talk about that as well. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays, 1 p.m. East Coast time, right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Don't forget about the mailbag, Show at gmail.com. Let's get into uh, this right away. There's not really not a moment to waste, and I'm going to open up the phone lines here if I can at 877-FIGHT-93, 877-344-4893. Here's what I want to want to – let me start this one more time. Here is where I would like to start the show, and I think it's a very obvious place. Last night – by the way, I don't understand why they aired on ESPN Plus as opposed to just straight up ESPN. I mean, ESPN was airing a, like a 2015 NBA playoff game. I just find that odd that that would be the place that they would go to rather than a live UFC event. I mean, it's live sports, but okay. Different conversation for a different time. In any event, so they put it on ESPN+. Plus. Main card was short. Uh, good action there from Brian Kelleher and Chase Sherman. And then the main card went off, and there were some great results to it, which we'll get to. But we have to start, I think, where the conversation starts. Now, we are going to talk about what this means for Glover Teixeira because the true tragedy in all of this is Glover Teixeira he is such a standout martial artist. I have such respect for Glover Teixeira. He is so talented, and at 40 years old, he's so driven. He never talks badly about anybody. He doesn't, he doesn't play stupid games. He just works hard. You know, he just shows up and tries to get better. He is friendly and... You just can't say enough good things about Glover Teixeira. So he has earned to me not a spot, you know, as the number one contender because there's so much uncertainty, but that's four wins in a row for Glover Teixeira. And we're going to discuss what that means for him a little bit later in the show. We will devote some time strictly to that. But the thing that everyone is talking about coming out of yesterday was the lack of a, uh, let's say, a timely stoppage in the main event. Anthony Smith comes out. And of course, to be clear, he does work here at SiriusXM, so I hope this is not awkward. I'm going to be as fair and as reasonable as I can be. He comes out, and I thought looked great. <laughs> he looked great. He had a swag to him, and dude, I thought he started off brilliantly. He looked just locked on. So why was he so good? First of all, his takedown defense was great. He was being a sniper, like he wasn't throwing a ton of extra shots, but the ones he, were, he was throwing were landing. Glover was rolling with a lot of them, as you heard the broadcast say, but he was making contact. He was popping his head back at times. And the thing about it, too, was he was in the appropriate range. They, they ostensibly both had a 76-inch reach, but Smith was doing a much better job, you know, at managing the space and, and landing and popping him. And then not overcommitting, but not, you know, not getting too far out of the way either. Perfect. I mean, he was just on fire. And then the second round, you, you begin to see Glover begin to take over. We know he likes to push people backwards. He would have Smith up against the fence at times. And then he really began to take over. Um, Smith was hurt with a series of punches, was ultimately on the ground. Uh, it seemed like was going to be overwhelmed, but wasn't. I thought at the end of the third, that is where referee Jason Herzog, who I like very much, who I think is a very good referee, should have said something to the corner. You see this in boxing all the time, which is, hey, man, you need to show me something. You don't want me to stop this. 
Okay. You need to show me something. Cause there was, you know, it was a confluence of events. Why did the fight go on as long as it did? My, my friend and colleague, Brian Campbell would argue. And I think he has a good point that like to share wasn't fully over committing to the position, probably for fear of like gassing or, you know, just doing kind of the safer thing. So it let Smith kind of hang on. The referee didn't intervene. We'll talk about that in just a second. And then his corner didn't throw the towel. Um, or, you know, not let him out for the fifth either. I mean, either way you want to describe it. And that's really where this becomes a problem. I mean, that was extraordinarily hard to watch, to be perfectly honest with you. There was round after round, essentially, is how it kind of felt, where Smith was being held up there, essentially, by how utterly durable he is. You know, he has the nickname Lionheart. He refused to quit. His teeth were getting knocked out, and he literally, if you guys did not see the replay, he grabs them in his hand while Teixeira either had his back or had his back with one hook in from half guard on top. Not half guard, but one hook in. And Smith grabs his teeth and then hands them to the referee. After the fourth round, he goes back to his corner and tells them, my teeth are falling out. They did not very much react to that. They seem to indicate that that was not something that was worth the alarm. Now, after the fight, his coach, Mark Montoya, who we like and have had on this show a number of times, um, told Brett Okamoto he thought Anthony was still in the fight. I don't understand how he could think that. And then um, later, it was determined, I guess, Anthony had texted Ariel Helwani of ESPN, and it was determined that Smith had a broken orbital a broken nose, a cut under, I think, his right eye. I have to go back and look at that. And he had two dislodged, complete teeth. Initially, Mark Montoya had told ESPN's Brett Okamoto that it was just veneers. But he actually lost two teeth. Um, that is one of the worst cases of a lack of intervention I think I've ever seen. Now, if past his prologue, uh, what I suspect will happen is that when Anthony has given a choice to speak about it, I certainly do not want to speak for him. I merely say this. I merely, I'm, what I'm about to say, I only say because I've just seen this happen over and over and over again. I, you know, if, if, if precedent holds, and maybe it does not, but if precedent holds, I suspect he will say that that is what he wanted. And it probably is what he wanted. He did not want his corner to intervene. I suspect that is what he was looking for. Raquel Pennington, for example, in the famous time where she said, I'm done. Her coach said, no, you're not. They send her back out there. She gets bludgeoned and then loses. She later defended it. I've seen it virtually every time, right? The fighters want to go to the worst. I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll die if they have to, right? I mean, so, so the idea that they were willing to take more uh, is not relevant. So, so how did we get to the position that we're in and why does this keep happening? I mean, I have a few different theories about it and I would love to know what you think at 877-FIGHT-93, 877-344-4893. I mean, here's basically what it comes down to. Two problems. One, we start with the referee. Okay, the referee in my mind, Jason Herzog is a very good referee. I, I know Jason a little bit. I've talked to him on a few occasions. I find him to be smart, capable, underrated, I would even argue. Uh, I thought he could have intervened a number of times. I thought there was a couple of missed opportunities to really get involved, as I mentioned, after the third, before the fourth, or even just giving him warnings in the middle of the fourth, letting the fight go on past the fourth. I mean, he, he, there, there were some missed opportunities there. On the other hand, this lays bare, look, the intelligent defense argument is if they are showing decision-making, if they are showing reasoning, if they are trying to work through these positions, you should let that go on. But clearly that argument 
I think it is helpful in many, if not the vast majority of fights, but it got Anthony Smith into trouble here because what you're eventually going to find is that you have somebody who is as talented as Smith is, so he knows the little places in a bad position to quote unquote hide, to like, you know, to to hold on when he has a two on one on Glover or to kind of wrap up in a way where he can't get hit too, too bad. Uh, but eventually what ends up happening is he's showing decision-making. He's not just laying there or covering up and doing nothing. He's doing just enough to let the fight keep going, but all it ends up doing is prolonging the beating because he's never really able to turn the tide. He's just he's just hanging on, in, in some cases quite literally. So the intelligent defense argument, I think Jason would probably say, I was trying to do with the rule state, and you could make an argument that he actually did, Right. The problem there is the rules are not quite good enough. To me, intelligent defense is a fine standard up until the point where you see somebody not really ever kind of meaningfully turning the tide, and then minute over minute, they're just taking abuse. And that, to me, was the problem, okay? So that's how we got there with Jason Herzog. In the case of the corner, I mean, listen, James Krause and Mark Montoya, we've both had them on the show. I can't say this enough. I find them both to be good men. I find them both to be smart men. I find them both to be rational. I find them both to be caring. I find them both to be experienced and knowledgeable. I find them to be as exemplary as you can possibly state. And that is what should alarm you because we are not talking about negligent people in the sense of um, they don't have enough experience or they don't care or they just don't want to be bothered to do the job correctly. That's not the problem. The problem is you've got people as decent and as smart and as caring and as, I would argue, careful as they are, and it does not occur to them that this is a problem. There's probably a number of reasons for that. We valorize taking a beating in the sport. We have a sense of what the corner might owe to the fighter, uh, a lot of times, like, well, the fighter says that if I don't let them do this, they won't work with me again. So they kind of hold each other hostage. I'm not saying that's the case here, but that's why we keep arriving at this position where it happens so frequently. A lot of people say it's about money, right? If you lose, you get half your purse. That could be the case. But I see people in boxing throw the towel in for in bouts where guys are, you know, making a thousand bucks. So I'm less convinced by that, but that probably plays a bit of a role. But here's what it just sort of occurs to me. MMA's safety record and also the way which you can distribute punishment over the totality of a body or, you know, you can advance in position where you're taking mount and that by itself is not hurting someone, but it sort of spells danger. But the reality is someone we care about who comes from a good camp with a caring, smart, dedicated coach, uh, who that may be, you know, take your pick from around the sport. They're going to have to have a fighter, male or female, who dies or has just unbelievably life-altering brain damage. That's it. Because arguing that it is so manifestly, I mean, how could it be that you had, and by the way, this wasn't like MMA media versus everybody like it was for COVID. I mean, Daniel Cormier was probably the most vociferous advocate of that fight being stopped more than even media. Right, so you had media, you had fans, you had numerous fighters being like, dude, what is happening? How can it be obvious to them and then literally the other way for people who have just as much high-level experience either as corners or as fighters or as martial artists or both? It is because something is wrong with the way in which 
we have set this all up and there is something missing experientially from all of this. Dude, Maxim Dadashev, the guy who died at National Harbor at MGM, 15 minutes here, from 20 minutes from my house, he was more competitive than Smith in that fight uh, and his corner still threw in the towel and he still died. The boxing is just way more tuned into this kind of thing. Way more. I, I, uh, I, we got to go to break, so let me just wrap it up here. Here is my belief. And I'm not saying it'll happen with X fighter or Y fighter or Z camp or whatever. But we can get mad about this, and you can call Mark Montoya names. I don't know Mark Montoya all that well, but from what I do know, I have had nothing but good things to say. I do not think he is a bad person, and I think he cares about Anthony deeply. But when you have a situation like that, and they're still letting people take beatings, and you could talk about the Thomas Gifford non-intervention or the Eric Anders, Khalil Roundtree non-intervention, then something is absolutely broken with the way in which high-level corners view the scenario, the relationship between the fighter and the corner in terms of what their responsibilities are, the, the rule set that let the referee go on. And I fear greatly, I fear very much, it is going to take an absolutely traumatic experience for people to wake up to how bad this is because words will not do it they will just say luke you're a media guy you don't know anything fine what about daniel cormier i guess he doesn't know anything either or all the other fighters who expressed they can find ways to just say it's not true you don't know what you're talking about we know each other they have a chance it is hanging on to absolute improbabilities and thinking that this is the likely outcome or that something like this is deserved or owed it is valorizing taking a beating it is a bad rule set it is a bad situation and it's not going to get fixed i fear until we just have somebody uh perish in front of us and i am i am horrified by that reality but i am frankly expecting it at this point this week on world of basketball former american college stars jimmy and billy barron joined the show and billy spoke about the famous heated red star partisan rivalry let's say partisan has the home court We'll have to drive to a separate parking lot on the other side of the city. The team will meet there, and then we'll all board the bus with, let's say, four police cars ushering us to the gym. The place is already half full, and it's an hour and a half before the game. I mean, I looked at Marcus Page, who was on the partisan, and I said, "What's this? how does this compare to Duke Carolina? He was like, can't, because this is nowhere near Duke Carolina. Carolina is like, this is so much crazier. New episodes of World of Basketball are available every Thursday on Pandora and every Monday on the Sirius XM app. Let's get right to our guest who has been patiently waiting. I think he joins us via the magic of Zoom. Yes, he does. He is the president of BKFC, making some news. We wanted to catch up with him and see how he's doing. It's David Feldman. Hi, David. How are you? I'm doing well, Luke. Thanks for having me. Yeah, where, where are you based out of, Dave? Where do you call home? I'm right outside of Philadelphia, Delaware County, Pennsylvania. Yeah, how are things over there through this, uh, what are you going to call them, unusual times? It's, people are getting very impatient. You know, you're, you're just... They're ready. To, they're ready to come out. So, um, you know, we're just doing what we can do. We're in our basement right now, trying to create some content, and we're uh, we're working on some big things. Um, what is the uh, what is BKFC's view about when it might be back and what the safety protocols? Because you're seeing what UFC is doing, but you know UFC has, I think it's fair to say, uh, significant resources, financial and otherwise. So they might be the first ones back. But the question for me is not who's the first one back. The question for me is how long the tail goes on that. What what is your sense of things? I mean, I think so far I've, I've watched both of their shows. I think they did a tremendous job. Um, they did what they can do in these unprecedented times that we're having now. 
Uh, we're going to be back uh, in late June, early July. We're going to announce that actually on Monday. We're going to do the same type of show. We're actually just going to do something a little different. We're going to have the safety protocol and everything that, you know, that we're mandated to do. And we're going to make sure all the fighters are safe and, and all the everybody that's working with us. But we're actually going to do a drive up show. We're going to do a drive up show. We're going to do an outdoor show with the canopy over top of the ring. We're going to do a drive up show. So, so we can get somewhat of a live audience in there. You're not going to get the atmosphere of it, but some live fans are going to be able to watch this, you know, with their cars parked up and pulled up like the old drive-in movies. We're just hmm. going to do something a little different, but we're also going to do that fight um, and, sh- and stream that fight for free so everybody can see that fight. Well, that's interesting. Uh, I've been reading articles about how drive-in movie theaters, rare as they may be, they're having a bit of a renaissance. So you're trying to, it's a smart idea. You're trying to sort of surf that wave a little bit, huh? We just, what do you do now, right? We're all asking ourselves, we're scratching our head. What do we do? How do we stay relevant? How do we do things to keep the fighters fighting? And we just thought it would be something a little bit different that we could do, not just a complete closed door show, but some fans can watch it, but still remaining safe to all the safety protocols that are out there. So. Um, it's funny because when this first happened, a guy that works for me in another company that I have said, we need to open up a drive-in movie theater. <laughs> first, first thing he said. So, yeah, that's what we're working on right now. Now, will there be COVID testing at this event? Absolutely, yes. 100%. Yeah, okay. Okay, well, we'll talk about that, I guess, at a little bit of a later time. I'm curious to see that one. And by the way, why why for free? I mean, here's why I ask. I sort of get it, right? You've got, what, 36 million Americans now out of work. But if the Sports Business Journal is to be believed, and there's some questions about it, but nevertheless, they're claiming 700,000 pay-per-view buys for UFC. Is there, I mean, is there a market for pay-per-view? It seems like there could be, right? There is, but I think that it was kind of like who got there first, and they got there first. Not comparing us with UFC, but us, UFC, boxing, but they beat boxing to the punch, is what I would say. And they were able to put on a really stacked card on pay-per-view and they, and you know they presumably did great numbers so i don't know if that's going to sustain unless they have bigger names i don't know if that's going to sustain those kind of numbers but i think everybody was scratching and itching just to do something and i think that was our opportunity to do it we um, want to do it because we just want to give back and i think it's a great time for us now to gain more of a fan base yeah and where would that stream on bkfc.com or um we actually have an, an, an app that we're launching um we're going to be launching our app here, and that's going to be our first show on the app. It's going to be wow, amazing. okay. So you can only watch on your mobile device? Um, mobile device or uh, computer. Um, okay. Actually, in starting in, we're not hooked up for it yet, but our, our next show that we do in August, you'll be able to watch on all smart TVs as well. Okay, well, that is interesting. Uh, all right, there's been this... Uh, there's been this news floating around. Apparently, and I want to just talk to you about this. Let's make sure it's all real and everything else. Mike Tyson has got an offer from you guys. First of all, confirm for me that this is true. This isn't some internet rumor that people heard. This is real. You guys have offered Mike Tyson a lucrative offer, and we'll get into the details here in just a second. True or false? Yeah. No, absolutely true. Okay. Uh, I sort of understand why, Mike, but just to make the case... Tell me why you have targeted Mike Tyson. I, I mean, I, I have a sense of things, but just to walk through it here. I wasn't really targeting Mike Tyson until, you know, he came back with the videos. He was training and he said, he said you know, he said, I'm back. So I said, look, if he's going to be back, I think this is a perfect plat- platform for him. Look, Mike Tyson at his age, I don't think he can do 10, three-minute rounds. This is five, two-minute rounds. It's a little different than what he's used to, but I, it's a shorter time frame, and I think it's something that would really fit his fighting style and his age group right now. 
Um, now, where are we in this process? Are they, have they heard it? Are they thinking it over? Is there any real traction to it? What is the status? We'll be very, 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 very transparent. Initially, they said, no, absolutely not, not bare knuckle. And then, you know, we, we talked a little bit more about doing some other opportunities with Mike and getting him involved. And then we're going back to the table with something. We have something really big that we're going back to the table on on Monday. Um, an offer with him, and um, it's not going to be here in the United States, but it's it's going to be a very very substantial offer, and um, we'll we'll see what happens from there. But initially, right now at this moment, it's dead. Okay, it's dead. But let's here, here's the thing. Here's the reports I saw. One of them was a twenty million dollar purse. Now, this was my reaction. I mean, don't get me wrong, David. I certainly understand um, and appreciate what you guys have built, but I also know the fight game and you know, the fight game promotions are like restaurants, right? A lot of times they're surviving on the thinnest of margins for any kind of profit opportunity that might be there. And so my question was, if you guys do have 20 million, where'd you get it? (laughs) Great question. Um, we have, um, a great group of investors with us. Um, we are, we are sustaining pretty well. We've done pretty good numbers. We didn't do phenomenal numbers, but we've done pretty good numbers so far, and we're 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 doing okay. And this was um, with the launch of the app, the app that we're going to do, and also partnerships with different networks that we're talking. We thought this was something that could really catapult us and get the you know the namesake of Mike Tyson out there would would really help get the viewers to come our way. And I thought it was something that even if it, it, if it costs us a little bit of money in the long run. I don't think we could pay that kind of money to get the kind of marketing we would receive in return. No doubt about it. Um, if you, Okay, so let's back up a step here. What kind of numbers do you think he would drive at age 50, whatever he is? I, I, I mean, it, it really depends where, where you're watching. If you're watching it on free TV with the deal that we may have, then you know he could do millions and millions and millions. If you're going to do a traditional pay-per-view, I think you're somewhere around the million mark. I don't think you're 10 million that some people are saying, you know, to be very realistic here. Also with not just the pay-per-view and what people's appetite is and spending, but also the pirating right now. And it's pay-per-view is getting pirated crazy. So I would say somewhere in the million pay-per-view mark would probably be very safe. And if we go to our app, which is going to be priced very, you know, very easily to to digest the price that we're going to charge, you know, we could get upwards of two or three million people watching it. I believe. Interesting. So, let's assume he. Let's assume you go back to the table with him, and um, they say, "Okay, we'll think about it." It, like, would you have to have? Uh, okay, so Gary Shaw is famous for saying, "You don't need one name for a fighter for to promote a fight. You need two. But two would be expensive if you're already dumping twenty mil into or however it ends up being for Mike. So, would it be like Mike versus some no name, or how are you thinking about what the appropriate matchup would be?" Within minutes of, a, of the offer going out and, and getting the media attention, we had had, had guys like Randy Silva, bigger names that are a little in advance than the age, but bigger names that I think would be a great, great fit for Mike. That would be priced reasonably. He would want to get paid, but I think it would be priced reasonably. Those kind of names out there, I think, would be very, very intriguing for not only boxing fans, but MMA fans as well. Interesting. What about uh, Evander Holyfield? I saw he announced at age, was it 57, that he's back. What about that? He's, he's, I mean, he's a legend. He's unbelievable. I've actually partnered with him on some boxing events in Philly that we did on his real deal promotions, but he's 57. I, he hasn't been training at all. Mike's only four years younger, but you know, he looks, he looks fantastic right now. So, you know, 
I don't, I wouldn't personally put a Evander Holyfield Mike Tyson fight. I don't think that the kind of money that that fight would cost would draw the kind of numbers you would need. I don't, not, not at their age now. I don't. But it's also like. The reason why I think this, Luke, I'm sorry to cut you off, is I personally don't think Mike Tyson doing these exhibitions and stuff like that really draws well. I don't, I think people are going to go, but if you fought Bare Knock Home, it's a different world for him. It's something he's never done before. I think that would really intrigue a lot of fans. I see. So the idea of he's just doing a four rounder and he's got headgear, who really cares? But if there's a little bit of a consequence to it and it's a new environment where he is, you know, the the minimal tape, you think that would uh, that curiosity factor would would change uh, purchasing uh, calculations? I, I I really think so. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Dave Feldman joins us here on the Luke Thomas show. Well, what about other projects that may be happening? I mean, that could just go busto, and you know, he just keeps saying no. What's the story about the Iranian Hulk and what's the situation there? Is there any hope of that? There's some gimmicks that we're doing to get press and to get, you know, can draw numbers on social media and things like that. And and with influencers on our app and we can do a lot of things like that. But we're, I've always said that we really want to build a real good, legit business with a lot of real fighters. And we have a really good stable right now. And we're building some of our stars from within. And it's just, you know, building anything good takes time and we have to, know that we're in this for the long run if we were in this for a year to make money and get out we never would, would last we know this is a five to ten year plan to get to where we need to be and we're going to get there we're just going to really build our own fighters we're signing a lot of guys a lot of guys are reaching out to us right now and i think the big names are great because it gets our name synonymous bkfc synonymous with a superstar-esque name but you know to really make this sustainable we have to build our champions and build our fighters from within and that's what we're really tempted to do right now yeah, sign from the top down, build from the ground up. Is that the idea? We have to. We have to. It's the only way we're really going to create our own fans. Was the was the Paulie and Artem fight? Did it deliver in the way you had hoped? It delivered. It delivered about what I thought it was going to um, do um, financially, but it delivered way, way more than I hoped for, as far as uh, getting a fan base and getting media attention and things like that. So that delivered very, very well for us. And to this day, that's the high watermark in terms of viewership for BKFC? Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, that was okay. One. That was, well, actually, the show after that, which we did free on Fight TV and just on our YouTube channel, we did 1.6 million live viewers. So that was actually our best one by far. Okay. Um, in terms of uh, the ability to get sanctioned in various states give me and the listeners an update where are you uh, allowed to do this and what are some of the next dominoes that could potentially fall in terms of states regulating uh, bare knuckle right now we're we're legal in kansas in wyoming in alabama new hampshire florida and um there's another state uh, what other state am i in i there's, there's, there's one other state and then we're the door, we're knocking on the door of Texas. I think that's going to open pretty soon. Massachusetts as well. And actually, you know, some some really big states, but I don't want to put that out yet, but there's one really big state that was one of the hardest to get for mixed martial arts, and I think that they're uh, they're going to open up any day. This return event, the one for late June, early July, whenever you guys figure that out, where can you tell us where, at least what state that's supposed to be in? It's going to be in Florida. That's going to be in Florida. Yeah, I would imagine that the Florida one looks pretty attractive right now, right? I mean, UFC's been there. Um, you know, I've been so I've been very concerned with COVID, but even I can understand that um, some of the pronouncements about how bad it would be in Florida were, were were just simply not correct. So that sounds like a good place for you guys, huh? Yeah, I think it's a good place. I mean, we may actually go back to the first place we did it in Wyoming, which they had the, 
the least amount of cases and the least amount of deaths in the United States. So that's a good one where we could potentially get a fan base too. We're talking through everything really in the next three to four days, and then we'll have everything concrete on um, on Monday. But we're definitely coming back pretty soon. I think the fans' appetite is is really wet for this right now, and um, we're just going to keep moving. I you know I I I know some people you know don't love what we're doing with bare knuckle, and some people love what we're doing. But we're just going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing until people know that this can be a mainstream sport. What did you make of the uh, ESPN Outside the Lines feature on Bare Knuckle? I mean, it was real. You know, I, I, I can't argue with it. It was real. We, we had my side and positives about BKFC, and we had negatives about BKFC, but that's the reality of it. So I'm a real person, and that's the reality. There's some naysayers and there's some supporters, and that's what we saw there. But I also believe that, you know, like Michael Mike Mazzoli went out and said that we're recycling fighters. Well, Luke, I'm going to ask you, where do we get fighters from? We just pull them out of midair. They're knuckle fighters. We have to get them from somewhere. They're either former boxers or former MMA fighters. So we've, we we pull them somewhere. But he's saying that we're using guys at advanced age. But, I mean, he's sanctioning fights with guys that are actually older than the guys that we've been using. So I just think it's um, – I don't think it's a fair assessment. Fair enough. Well, I'll give you the last word there. Uh, late June, early July – with the drive-in, I am looking forward to seeing the details of this, David. Uh, so uh, thank you so much for making some time for us, and can't wait to see what the next thing is you guys have cooking up with an official announcement. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Luke. I appreciate it. Stay well. Anthony Smith on MMA Tonight. Is this now the moment where everyone's looking at Justin Gaethje as maybe the best lightweight on planet Earth? Justin Gaethje is fundamentally better than Tony Ferguson, so I'm not sure if they ran that back, if it would look much different. Maybe that was the Gaethje effect. Like, maybe it's not Tony. Maybe he didn't have an off night, and Justin Gaethje's just good at making people look bad. At this point, there's a strong argument to be made that Justin may be the best 155-pounder on the planet. Tuesday through Thursday, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern on Sirius. XM Fight Nation. Boy, Dana was not nice when he was talking about the New York Times. Wow. So to set this up, and we'll talk about the actual contents of the article in greater detail in just a moment, Kevin Draper, who was on the show last week, reported in the New York Times that, um, what did he report? He reported that uh, the UFC had put together a, a protocol plan. I read the entire document. And that they weren't really sticking to big parts of it, which, by the way, is like incontestably true. So I'm not even sure what he's mad about. Like, dude, if you read the document and then you see what they're doing, I mean, yes, a lot of it and maybe even some of the key components you would say are in there, like the skeleton of it for sure is in there. But are they adhering to it by the letter? No. Not even close. I even found a contradiction in the document. I tweeted about it. Of course, the replies are a graveyard, like they always are. Whenever you're like, hey, health and safety. Um, in the document, it says, you know, the commentators will not be octagon side. They'll be separated, but they also won't be in a normal octagon position. And then later on in the actual document, it has a map of where everyone's supposed to be. And the map itself has all the commentators octagon side. I'm not even saying that they should or shouldn't be octagon side. I don't know. That seems above my pay grade. But I'm just saying your document says in written language they shouldn't be, and then your map clearly shows them there. And I was like, okay, well, maybe someone could have proofread this a little bit better. Anyway, neither here nor there. John Morgan asked Dana White about it at yesterday's uh, post-fight presser, and uh, Dana was, he was bitter about it. We got some audio. Uh, there was an article uh, in the New York Times today that was very critical of the execution of... Fuck that guy. I, fuck that guy. You know what happened with that guy? That guy who's never covered 
the, the sport ever before was writing a story about um, Endeavor. And then the UFC was one of the Endeavor, you know. And, and, and what do you think happened when this guy who, in this paper, covered the UFC when they'd never covered it before? What do you think happened? This fucking story was huge. They did killer traffic. Now, now they're writing stories three a week and they're putting posting live results. I don't give a shit what that guy thinks, what he has to say or what he writes. Good for him, he's, he's pulling good traffic. Do you not worry about the, like, the, the, the... I don't give a fuck. Fair enough. Don't give a fuck. <laughs> I never know what to say to this stuff anymore. Did he refute any of the claims in the article? I saw like when MMA Junkie posted the uh, when he posted when they posted the clip here. You can read the comments, and some of the comments are derogatory, as you would imagine. But most of them were not. Most of them were like, "Yeah, Dana, stick it to him." And I'm always wondering, like, look, man, you know, everyone just listen. Everyone likes it when people stick it to other people who they feel like are getting involved in their business and they don't want it to be. So I sort of understand it. But it's like, does it dawn on no one that like he didn't actually answer any of the claims in the article? I mean, Kevin Draper has written a few articles at this point, and Dana has called them lies, but in a very general way. Like, he cannot, he's never said this claim is false. Like, dude, let me ask you something. If the most circulated newspaper on earth was routinely printing lies about you, and you could prove it, wouldn't you do something about it? Okay, I mean, I guess it's a function of your interest level and what the laws actually dictate and, and what and what kind of court and what kind of, you know, uh, in particular uh, a method you would want to use, uh, you know, for, for defamation or whatever. But it's like, dude, the UFC is just going to let them stand by and print false things, like knowingly false things. I, I, I mean, maybe. I mean, right? Maybe, that, maybe that's one explanation for it. I, I tend to think that's not the best explanation for it. I tend to think that they're just reporting things that they don't maybe like the tenor of or maybe they find inconvenient. But like, here, here's the thing I read. So I read the 20-page document. I read the whole thing from cover to cover, right? Didn't take that long. And I looked at the maps and looked at everything else. Here's what I'll say. Dude, there's a lot of good in the document. It's a well-put-together document. Clearly, whoever put it together, did, like I would say in general, in general, did a good job. The document is not to be, I mean, I found that one contradiction, but it's not to be ashamed of. I mean, there's good in there. Now, there's a lot of questions in there too, right? So one of the questions I have is that they mention um, what cleaners, this is, a true, this is true, right? So get ready for this. You know how they said they're going to clean the octagon between events and blah, 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 even between fights if they could? In the document, they actually mention specifically which cleaners they're going to use, which cleaning products. And they mention it in detail by name. And they note that two of them that they're using, because they're using, to their credit, this is what I mean when I say good stuff, to their credit, they're using two different hospital-grade disinfectants on the cage and, and other stuff beyond that. I mean, why would you not be proud of that? That seems like absolutely the right thing and probably not an easy thing to do. And You know what I'm saying? Like, that's... What, what, what could be the harm there? There's no harm there. But here's what I also noticed. In the document, it mentions they're going to do swab testing for COVID-19, as we all know, and then antibody testing. Well, here is what we have come up with and discovered about antibody testing. 
Antibody testing is deeply and profoundly unreliable up to the point where either half or more of the tests are no good. Now, that is changing as the FDA has begun cracking down on them, but they have proliferated and allowed a market to develop that does essentially no quality control over any of the products. So as a consequence, you get what you get, which is um, a bunch of tests went to market that are bad. Wouldn't it be nice to know which ones they're using? You're telling us which hospital-grade cleaner you're using by name. Why would you not mention which company you're using by name for the antibody testing or the COVID swab testing, which I think the COVID swab testing is probably more reliable, obviously, but um, you know, you're, they're doing both here. And by the way, it's not just about false negatives. It can be false positives, too. So you can get a reading being like, oh, you definitely have COVID when you might not have at all. They don't, they don't mention it, right? And then they had the contradicting point about that. And dude, there's all kinds of stuff about, you know, so-and-so will wear a mask and so-and-so won't, and this person will be close and this person won't. And you get the sense that, like, dude, everyone is trying to figure this out, and it's very, very difficult, and they clearly have some of the right ideas. There's no doubt in my mind. But it's just not debatable. I'm, listen to what I'm telling you. You can, and, and you're like, oh, Luke, how'd you get the document? Dude, it is available on that New York Times article for download. How did I read it? I just went and clicked it, downloaded it, done. Tell me you can read that document and say that they're adhering to everything in that document. Now, what you might want to say is, oh, the stuff they're not adhering to may not matter. Okay, well, then make that argument. But Dana didn't even make that argument. This is my point. Maybe you say, listen, we put together that document. We have realized that some of those things uh, don't do us any good. And they are, may in fact, backfire. They could be bad for us if we thought that they were good, right? Remember what the waiver says that they made everybody signed. We're under no obligation to do any testing. The commission is not making us do it. So if we don't, you can't say anything or sue us about it or, you know, disparage us about it. Now, they are doing it, but they're making people sign a waiver saying we don't have to. What am I, why do I bring that up? Because all of this COVID protocol is what they're forcing on themselves, it's not in the letter of the law. Not yet, anyway. So, this is my point. The New York Times article is right. <laughs> now, you could say, well, they're pointing out stuff that doesn't matter. Okay, we'll read the document, read the article, and say, um, sure, they're, they're correct by the letter of the uh, strictest reading, but not about things that really matter in the totality of the grander picture then go and make that argument. But you keep hearing this, and this is the same thing I said like when they didn't do COVID testing for the Brasilia show or they had no plans to do COVID testing for the London show and on and on and on and on and on. This was my point. It was like, dude, you talk about your health and safety record, which to be clear, non-COVID related up to that point where you know UFC London was happening, so we're all the way back in March. Yeah, it was exemplary. Who could say otherwise? But if you're going to defend what you're doing, come out and say, we're not doing COVID testing, and here's why. Defend what you're doing, not, you know, oh, the media is trash, and we hate them, and, you know, whatever else other ends. Oh, uh, Steven Espinosa is a creepy-looking dude. Well, turns out everything he said on Twitter was correct. <laughs> Dana's like, oh, these, these disparagement clauses are in all our contracts. Yeah, now they didn't used to be. Old contracts don't have a disparagement clause in them. By the way, you heard Jonathan, uh, not Jonathan, I'm sorry, you heard John Nash on the show earlier this week. The, uh, 
the clause has no end date. It's like, so is it enforceable in perpetuity? So this is what I'm saying. Like, here's the thing about what the UFC is doing, which kind of blows my mind. And people think I'm being overly negative about it. It's like, dude, why can't we just have a balanced conversation about this? The conversation we're having is, here's why the, excuse me, the conversation we're having is not, here's why the UFC is doing everything wrong. The conversation is not, here's where the UFC just doesn't care. Uh, The conversation is not, um, let's just talk bad about UFC. The question is, okay, do we all agree it'd be really bad if people got COVID at the show and then infected other people who could then potentially get really sick? My mother-in-law found out yesterday one of her coworkers and her son both died of COVID-19. They were diabetics, but they, one was in his 30s, and he died, died of COVID-19. Okay? Uh, I don't worry about UFC fighters. I think they'll be fine, right? But do they know people who might not be? So we can all agree that would be bad. Okay, good. Can we all agree we should take a reasonable effort to do that? Sure, right? That sounds fine. Can we all agree that the UFC's self-imposed plan is probably a decent blueprint to at least start? Right? You could make adjustments higher or lower or whatever over time, but for now, this seems like a good roadmap. We all agree, right? Okay. So then give me the excuse for not adhering to it. To, to a, one event in, not even two, one. <laughs> and that's all I'm saying. Is that crazy? Is the New York Times like crazy for that? And the last thing I would say is, dude, the New York Times is the most circulated newspaper in the world. You know, listen, we, we cover the UFC because we love MMA, right? I hope that's pretty clear. And, uh, you know, no more needs to be said about that. Do you think the New York Times is sweating UFC traffic? I mean, you know, they probably wanted to see what kind of returns they would get with that uh, results they were posting on uh, Saturday. But do we really, like, y'all think that's a thing that they need? I wish. Well, I mean, wouldn't it be great if the New York Times was covering MMA? We got a New York Times MMA reporter? Wow, that'd be great. But that's not what Kevin Draper does. It's not what the New York Times does. It's the biggest newspaper in the world. I don't think that they're hurting for traffic in the sense that UFC can be a savior for them. Could be wrong about that, but, you know, listen to what even Dana's own words were. When media gets laid off, you know, first it'll be the, you know, um, it'll be the MMA guys before it'll be the NBA guys before it'll be the uh, NFL guys because they're the least important ones. Okay, well, which is it? They're the least important ones or it's the ones saving the New York Times sports section? So I, This is what always just kills me. It's like, dude, the document, there's plenty in there to like. Why can't we just have a debate about the terms of it? The actual ones. It's crazy. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at LThomasNews and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.